0: Today, we conclude our five week series on three classic interpretations of the Atonement. Again, I'd like to thank my esteemed and cherished conversation partners today, Dr. Steve Paulson of Luther House here in Sioux Falls, um, well known, well beloved uh, Luther scholar, and uh, dear friend of some 40 plus years, as well as my nephew, Nick Christofferson. Recent grad of Texas uh, Christian University and first year uh, law student at Wake Forest come fall. Uh, So, with this being our concluding session for this fifth time together, let's just simply dive in. And, and Nick, let me ask this beginning question. Uh, Given our discussion over the past four weeks, which of the three atonement interpretations do you think is the most biblically? Um, theologically sound and which interpretation do you think is predominant in our time why do you think perhaps it's has a stronger following or let's use the word popular more than the other two
1: well in my many years of theological study uncle (laughs) 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 which come to a weighty zero uh, but I'll just I'll come back at this question as best I can. It's been uh,
0: vicarious though through your mother at Luther House.
1: That is that's true. A lot of it rubs off at the dinner table,
0: and it's been satisfying. Yes, yes.
1: So I'll I'll try to rank them as I see it, and please both of you correct me if you think that there's some error. But I think the best one theologically is the Christus Victor, uh, and I think that's because the It really gets at the meat of why Christ came back or of the overarching Christian narrative. Um, that there was this corruption of God's humanity, and that corruption needed to somehow be, or God's creation needed to be reconciled to him in some way. And Satan never thought that uh, Christ himself would pay the price. That was never even on the table. Uh, even though it was perhaps always an option, and so when Christ did come back, uh, died for he, uh, to reconcile his creation to God, uh, it flipped its script. It was this big trick on Satan, uh, and it through the action of Christ coming and dying, it reveals God's deep love uh, for his humanity, uh, his creation. So I think that's the most theologically sound. Then the second one. Uh, if we were ranking it, that would be probably the best. Uh, the second best would probably be maybe the the subjective moral exemplar, just because I think it, it gets to the nature of God a little bit more than the more sterile or clinical uh, objective view. Uh, and then probably the last might be the objective view. Uh, Because it kind of forgets about the importance of the resurrection, and it's probably the narrowest, most focused interpretation. And as to the one that's most relevant in our time today, uh, ironically, I think it's probably you would flip the order. (laughs) Uh, I think the objective is probably the most prevalent today. Uh, There's a church, Ransom Church, I don't know if that's in sioux falls but it might be in texas i think it's a very common name now you know churches go through cycles i guess Mm y'all's generation was probably grace lutheran hope lutheran church uh great yeah grace and hope are the two big ones that i can think of but just kind of like positive adjectives and now it's all ransom lutheran and then which i think it's at or ransom church you know it's all non-denominational today and all of these churches always say christ paid the price for you uh you know, your sins are forgiven on account of Christ, which is very true. I mean, amen. <laughs> but it's, it's a lot inspired by that uh, objective interpretation. And then the second most prevalent today is probably the, the love. God is love. God is perfect. Uh, God is, uh, and that gets into the social justice, which I think is also true. I mean, God is a loving God and he is perfect. Uh, but sometimes I think that carries us away and distracts us from the promise. Your sins are forgiven on account of Christ. And then the least popular is probably the Christus Victor. That this was—I think people lose sight of the overarching narrative. Uh, they don't typically go back to the the Garden of Eden, except to find where uh, Adam and Eve debted themselves. <laughs> they went to the loan shark and they took on a debt that they couldn't themselves repay, and that's really the only relevant. Uh, part of that, so that you can then tell the redemption story. So I guess those are my two cents.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, A second question here, um, Dr. Paulson, is uh, one about just the quote-unquote doctrine of the atonement, which is, if you will, somewhat lacking and and what has happened over the years, I think is because we have not had something as well defined like at the Council of Nicaea on um, Christology or understanding the person of Christ, the work of Christ has become uh, some people might say kind of played around with with all kinds of different theories, et etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. and um, why do you think it is that we after some 2,000 years, lack um, any kind of strong uh, dogma or official doctrine regarding the work of Christ. I, I, I know that we could say probably broadly that Christ is what he does and he does who he is for what he is, but um, how is it that the Christology and the atonement have kind of been torn asunder, and even further torn asunder with all the different theories of atonement.
2: Well, uh, right. Uh, when, you, when you are uh, trying to make a doctrine of the cross of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. you are trying to use a theory, and underneath a theory uh, is a way of trying to make the cross into something desirable. That's why you can't that's why they can't do it. the church has never it's not that they uh they it, it's not that they couldn't call a council or that after uh, the Council of Nicaea or again after Constantinople and not just once but twice had councils and so on. It's not that councils couldn't be called and the uh the, the uh, Roman church specifically uh the Pope. Has tried to call um, the uh, uh, councils for a whole host of things uh, ever since that time, but they have uh, they they can't they can't do a council on this because every time they put forward a theory and then want uh, bishops or theologians to vote on this sort of thing and then determine. Uh, what it is that the church rightly teaches or preaches, none of them actually wants what Paul means when he says, this is First Corinthians, when he says, we're not just talking about the cross, we're talking about the word of the cross. And it's in 1 Corinthians where he says, the reason that you have all goofed up the Lord's Supper and don't know what to make out of it, Instead instead of having the Lord's Supper, you've made it into a celebration, he says. What we call uh, a happy meal. And uh, when you make it into a happy meal and you make it into a celebration, Paul says, that's why uh, most of you can't even wait uh, to break into the wine. You you, uh, break into the wine before people get off work. And uh, you're completely drunk by the time uh, they come, and you have turned this into a festival uh, in which you're trying to say that Jesus Christ's cross is the most desirable thing, the highest good, the greatest beauty, the thing that uh, that that everyone would desire if they knew the secret behind it. Like he's paying a debt, or uh, he's tricked Satan, or. Uh, he's giving us the greatest act of love ever uh, 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 ever seen by humankind or something like that. They, every one of these theories is trying to get you to say the cross is the best thing that has ever happened in life and the most desirable thing that a thinking human being would ever come across. And Paul then says, but you forgot one thing. You've forgotten that the cross, uh, that the reason we're doing the Lord's Supper is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the cross of Jesus Christ is, you killed him. That's what this means. Uh, And uh, this is now being said directly to you. Uh, And nobody wants to hear it. They all want to have a theory, they all want to have a doctrine. They all want to say why it is that uh, people should uh, jump on the bandwagon and celebrate Christ and his cross the way we do. And as Luther kept saying, they tried to take away the offense of the thing. And a doctrine is a theory that tries to take the offense of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ away so that I can't be blamed for it and that what Christ actually does with this uh, is to put me to death, not just improve me, uh, and uh, only then uh, does he raise me from the dead. And I, I find this extremely offensive. So that uh, that any doctrine or theory that I attempt to put in the place of a preaching, in the place of actually giving it in the sacrament, uh, that actually now uh, destroys the word of the cross, which is what Paul is after.
0: Yeah, I have a number of ways to respond to that, um, Steve, and uh, Nick weigh in on this as well. Number one, I think it's uh, somewhat embarrassing to consider what the first question was that I put to Nick, because I was saying, well, which do you think is the most popular, or which do you think is the most sufficient uh, theologically uh, that is to say, which do you like best? And I think that is what you're getting at here, Steve, is we try to blunt the folly, the offense, the scandal of the cross with a theory, with the roses that you've talked about before. And um, so um, this is where, uh, for me, I think the abstractions that happen with the theories get lost exactly, or get us lost. um, And should I say, distracted from the actuality that comes in the proclamation and the sacraments uh, themselves. And um, this, this, I think, is what is causing um, the question of the atonement to become so fuzzy is because we start taking a poll. And you and I both know a certain professor back in the early 80s who wrote a book on uh, the atonement, the anonymous Christ. And uh laid out the different soteriologies in such a way as to say, well, which one do you like the best? Which one engages us uh to your your kind of preference? And like you say, it, it takes away uh the scandal, uh the putting to death uh of those who are who are asking the question. Nick, did you did you have a sense in which um when I asked that question, that um, I was trying to somewhat pin you down with a a theory or the law, rather than giving any sense of gospel or good news. I mean, there's there's the deep irony.
2: Yeah, I'll answer that. I'm going to answer that for Nick before he uh, answers. When you've got two old men theologians... Talking to a young man, theologians, it's our responsibility to put him in an impossible place and to ask him a a question that cannot be answered except uh, with a wrong answer. And so, uh, what you did is exactly what should be done. Uh, And um, and I'm I'm, I'm proud of you for doing it. Uh, Now, Nick can answer the question.
1: Yeah, good. Well, I think you did to me, uh, I guess, what I God of to all of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah you, well, you humbled me, perhaps, right? And I think with even with these uh, theories, um, we think that we're so smart because we feel like we put God into a box or we have a way we can answer God, um, and we celebrate what God did to us. But really, the whole Christian narrative is one that's embarrassing to us, That humiliates us in a way and humbles us. And I, and I think, I don't know, to Dr. Paulson's point when he talks about uh, the appropriate response to the cross, whether we're to love it or uh, celebrate it or be ashamed by it. I mean, I think that it's a complicated emotional response as a Christian, but I think it's one that's full of humility, uh, being humble uh, before God, knowing uh, what He did for us, but also what we did <laughs> to Him, that we were the truck driver.
0: Well, yeah, I think I think it's important that we don't just push to the side uh, what is to be gained by digging deep into these particular views or theories or interpretations. Um, I, I I think that. Uh, that doctrine does serve something very important that is as guideposts to continually be bringing us back to scripture and saying, well, what does scripture say rather than freewheeling with our imagination and saying, well, what seems to appeal best to reason? What seems to appeal best to experience? What seems to best appeal to how I feel, which is often kind of uh, what's going on in our culture today. So, You know, as a couple of old theologians that Steve has dubbed us as being here, we -hmm. make the distinction between first-order theology and and the gift of faith that has come to us, and second-order is is a reflection upon that. And I think what we've done the last four weeks is to reflect upon what does the cross mean? What is what was Jesus doing on the cross? And yes, we come up short. We are humble. Uh, We cannot fully Unpack uh, the Mysterium Christi, the the mystery of Christ and Christ's work on the cross. But I do come to something here that Dr. Paulson has just thrown this big kitten ball right over the middle of the plate. And I've wanted to ask him this question for years and years because his doctor father, in many ways, Dr. Gerhard Ferdi, when he was doing his doctoral work at Harvard, studied with a uh, gentleman named Herb Richardson. And I'm going to run this pie, Steve, because I have always wanted to ask, but never had the time. So with regard to the connection between Christology and incarnation um, and soteriology or atonement and the work of Christ, here's a very provocative thought that Herb Christian, Richardson came up with, and he says, uh, God would have come to dwell among us in the Incarnation, even if humanity had not sinned. Now, Aquinas was bright enough to you know, come up with that question, but he said non probator. He said, no, I really can't say that if there was no human sin, God would have come, or no. But Richardson goes on to say, The incarnation is not a rescue operation decided upon only after sin had entered the world. Rather, the coming of Christ fulfills the purpose of God in creating his good creation. Sanctification, not redemption, is the chief work of Jesus Christ. God with us rather than God for us. And so, as one of my brilliant friends would say, and I mean that with all sincerity, how do you like that? <laughs>
2: Steve?: Well, well we uh, the first thing we want to say is that a we nice love radical.: Yes, I uh, first, first thing the first thing we want to say is that we love all Anglicans, including all Richardsons who are Anglicans. and um, and uh, and that that is another way for me to say I am now going to criticize. Uh, this form of Anglican theology, even though we love uh, Anglicans as people, so you are right. Um, this is uh, we're we're all talking uh, about um, uh, doctrines. Doctrines are worth talking about. In fact, if I didn't say that, I wouldn't have a job any longer because that's what I spend uh, most of the, uh, my days doing. There are moments that are called preaching moments where this actually now, um, where where all of the doctrine um, finally ends up. Uh, But yes, we can talk about doctrine. Uh, As you mentioned, Gerhard Ferdi, as Gerhard Ferdi used to put it, um, doctrine is talking about yesterday's sermon while preparing for tomorrow's sermon. But when you are between yesterday's sermon and tomorrow's sermon, uh, you have you are not actually giving a sermon at the time. Uh, but you can sit and think about it. Uh, how did la- last sermon land? How was it heard? Did people actually uh, hear the law and the gospel? And you can prepare uh, to the best of your ability to try to do that. Uh, the next time you come to preach. So we're talking about this time between preaching, and we're talking about the joy of doing theology and thinking about uh, these terms and so on. But now you've raised uh, the uh, question of the cross of Jesus Christ in the way that most doctrinalists put it. And that's the way that Anselm himself put it. But in fact, most most of the people that That are behind these theories that we've talked about put it in the same way that is what they're really talking about is not the cross of jesus christ what they're trying to figure out is why god became a man the incarnation that's what's really puzzling to them uh they 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 figure that the cross was in some way or another a tragic mistake That's uh, that's that's the way, uh, or if not a tragic mistake, then a tragic necessity. So, if God has to pay a debt by putting his son on the cross, this is Anselm, then the reason he had to do that is that, uh, how did Nick put it, uh, some dull wits got into debt. They indebted themselves. Adam and Eve screwed up from the very beginning, and they went into debt. Well, if they hadn't done that, then, then uh, Christ would not have come. Um, and uh, he's, uh, he, uh, Anselm is trying to figure out something like that. This is why Richardson says real, the, the real issue here is the incarnation. It's not the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And then he tries to say that the incarnation um, is really a matter of sanctification, now that is old um, that is old um, a, a Protestant teaching that went away from the teaching of Luther on this particular matter, and then comes up with the harebrained idea that being justified by faith is not what this is all about. It is sanctification, and sanctification is, well, what is it? It's going to be the perfection of what God originally created. And there you get, uh, this is Richardson. Richardson now says, this is really, it's really about sanctification, but sanctification is really about creation. But here is what he's trying to say creation was good, but not, not complete. <laughs> And therefore, the first article, God creating things, now has to be completed in the third article of faith, which is the Holy Spirit and sanctification, and therefore creation now has to be complete, a of, of, of fold, a uh, of, of perfected. You have all kinds of language for that. But all of this is uh, terrible nonsense. Uh, so, what we can say is what uh, what Luther says at this point, stay out of the things that you know nothing about. And one of the things that you know nothing about is how it was that Jesus Christ would become incarnate and what that would actually uh, mean or be without uh, without sin and without the cross and without our knowledge of any of these things. Because the only thing we know is what we've been told in the, basically, in the book of Genesis, you find uh, also uh, references in Psalms and so on, uh, to those few moments before sin entered. But we really can't get behind that other than to say the true thing, which is. If Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, whatever that would have uh, been, uh, been or would have looked like, certainly it is true that our Christ, the Son of the Eternal Father, would be incarnate because he is the incarnate one. He, incarnation and the cross did not come as an afterthought. Uh, it, the, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, or now especially the birth of Jesus Christ uh, by uh, the Virgin Mary, was not an afterthought or uh, a correction for a mistake, because God, is, uh, God sending his Son to be among us, that is to actually be a human being, is certainly what God wants all along. But we can't really say anything more about that because we're we're numbskulls who don't know anything about what this would have looked like, how this would have taken place, if uh, we hadn't sinned, and now we have to get back to the reality that we actually do know. I we we have sinned, and we do know now that the incarnation uh, now now ends up at the cross. Because we wouldn't have it any w- any other way, not because God had to have it that way. We wouldn't have, we w- we can't stand our God in any other way when he comes in the flesh and when he comes forgiving us, we yeah. won't take it and we say what, well, but we want to be made righteous apart from your uh, mercy, and apart from the cross of Jesus Christ, and we want to do it by perfecting ourselves according to the law. And God says, "There's no way that that is going to happen." And when that ha- when when that is said, then the cross becomes necessary because of who we are, not because of God needing to fulfill something in Himself or, uh, you know, uh, you know enact incarnation fully or whatever it might be so nece- the necessity that all of these theories talk about is the necessity of us demanding finally to put God on the cross. it is not the necessity of God saying I have to do this in order to correct a an error or do something to get rid of sin or whatever it might be
0: well I you know for Nick and myself, what what I'm hearing here also just from the very beginning of our conversation is, um, you know, the whole language that comes from Luther, and that is to say something about the God hidden and God revealed in Christ. Just don't try to talk about something you have no business talking about. And oftentimes that, that's exactly where we're going here with some of the, the theories and interpretations and motifs on trying to, you know, uh, as Nick says, put God in a box relative to the doctrine of the atonement, for example. And so then what I would like to ask you about is getting outside the box, let's say, here, Steve, with the atonement theories. And you just mentioned the thing itself, which... in in your writing and Gerhard Ferdi and others coming from Luther, talks about the great reversal so that we can understand what is the thing itself, and then moving from abstraction to the actual event. And all three of these expressions are kind of tied together, but if you could help us now with the constructive task of moving from Uh, The abstractions and the theories of the atonement into the task of proclamation and the sacraments, I think, would be uh, very, very much appreciated.
2: Yeah, I mean, the normal way that these theories operate is to, as we were just saying, is to try to ask, why did God need to do things this way? Uh-huh. and uh, when when you when you ask that question, "Why did God need to do things this way then it then the cross fulfills some sort of need inside of god that's what that's the way these theories operate, like he had to somehow trick Satan or he had to somehow uh demonstrate a love greater than any other act of love known to humankind or uh, he had to uh pay a debt in order to keep justice, otherwise he would lose uh what what true justice is all about um, and um, and so uh, most most of the time when we uh speak about uh theories of the cross or why the cross or what what why did God need to do this uh we are trying to move up into God. And we are trying to ask questions about what we think God would have to do uh, as long as we now um, uh, uh, assume that he is trying in some way or another to fulfill uh, his eternal law. And he has to do it by crucifying his son at some point. But um, that's not what actually uh, preaches Christ. And here is where, where we can talk about something like the great reversal. And the great reversal stops trying to go up into God's inner being and figure out what he needed. Instead, what you do is let God do what he actually did do and wants to do and that is come down to us in Jesus Christ. And when he comes down to us in Jesus Christ, we now have a reversal of the normal pattern or way that we want to go. We normally want to go up to him, and we want to demonstrate to God that we are doing it the way he uh, wants us to do it, and so on. But instead, the great reversal is God coming down to us that means incarnation but it also means crucifixion he 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 will not stop even though we want to stop him and uh the great reversal then also means this what god is doing in the cross is what he always does in his son which is forgive sinners that's what he's doing and uh The the Gospel of Mark makes this plainer than any others, but they are all saying the same thing. That is, the reason Christ ended up on the cross was that he came down from heaven, and when he came among us to dwell among us as a true human being, whom they could hear and see and so on, what he actually did was forgive sinners their sin starting with the quadriplegic man who was let down through the roof in the second chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Jesus had a group, including his own family there. The man was let down through the roof, and Jesus turned around, and then he forgave the man his sin, which is one of the craziest things you could ever imagine. Then after he forgives him, he does the medical work, to actually make him walk again. Then he turns around to the group and he says, Now, which was the greater thing, when I forgave this man or when I healed him and gave him his legs again? Which was the greater thing? None of them could figure out what it was. Meanwhile, the Pharisees are sitting in the back saying, uh, this, uh, Who does this man think he is? He's clearly a human being, and he is forgiving sin, which only God can do. And from that point on, it says in the Gospel of Mark, they wanted to crucify him. Now, uh, this is uh, what it means to speak about a reversal of direction. And now to understand that what Christ wanted to do from the very beginning is forgive our sins, and he intends on doing that come hell or high water, even if, even though we are going to resist him finally by trying to shut him up once and for all by putting him on the cross, and there saying, uh, "There, that's where you belong," as a curse, under your own father's curse, that's where you belong. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, uh, Christ um, takes it; he goes through it. Then on the third day, uh, to all of our surprises, the devil's surprise, uh, to the surprise of those of us who are trying to imitate his great act of love, or for those of us who are trying to say that he has paid our debt already, then what you know, what is he possibly doing coming out of the grave? What does he do when he comes out of the grave? He goes and finds the people that betrayed him, starting with the disciples at the last supper, when he turned to them and gave them his own body and blood. And he did it while they were betraying him. And uh, he turns to those who betrayed him and he forgives their sin. This time he overcomes every effort that they put in to stop him from doing this because now he is doing it uh, beyond death itself and beyond the grave, and there is nothing we can do to him to shut him up. And uh, now he continues to pour this out. And this is also why it is that when Paul is speaking about the cross and he's giving us the word of cross, the cross, he always goes to two things. He goes to baptism which is the first time this word is applied to us, and he goes to the Lord's Supper. And he uh, tells us, this is where the crucified Christ, who has been raised from the dead, is now going to come and speak to you who have betrayed him. And he is going to say something to you, which only he can say. And that's what we mean by the work of the reversal of direction where Christ finally comes to us in the Lord's Supper and says, what only a crucified Christ who has now conquered not only the devil, but death itself, the final enemy, and he is now coming back to say something to us, and he's going to say it both in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. And by the way, he also says it whenever we give a good sermon. But as we know, those of us who have been around, we can't always deliver the sermon uh, in uh, in the way that we should. And so we have to depend on the Lord's Supper uh, and especially
0: on the first form that this is given in baptism. A follow-up and then a lead-in. Um, the follow-up is, as you've been talking about the sacraments here, for example, and bringing that together with the atonement. In our first session together, Steve, you talked about uh, breaking down this rather archaic word so that we could understand it better that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. This reconciliation, this bringing back into unity or to oneness, at one moment, if you break down the word atonement. And I was just thinking to myself with baptism, uh, how this is so, uh, where the thing itself comes into being here, uh, with Paul's language in Romans 6 5, that if we have been, um, buried uh, with Christ in a death like his, uh, so shall we be, uh, raised up in a resurrection like his. And here's that, that one that is being brought together. And, and so, I, I appreciate uh, having that plotted in my in my mind. And so the the lead in for for Nick here, it's it's a bit of an unwieldy, shall we say, extravagant question. But I know you're up for it, Steve. <laughs> so Nick, if you would read for Steve, one of the questions that was emailed to me, Nick, it's number Roman number eight. There, do you have it in front of you? Yep. Could you, could you read that to Dr. Paulson? And, and I just want to have him uh, have a big swing at this.
1: Okay. The question says, it seems like the quote for us is the heart of the matter. When we talk about the atonement for when our sins are forgiven, then God's wrath is placated or satisfied. What does this mean exactly? And how does it relate to the happy exchange language that Luther used? I'm still not sure I understand how Christ, who is without sin, as witnessed in Hebrews 4, ch- uh, chapter 4, verse 15, becomes a sinner by taking on our sin. Christ takes upon himself the sin of the world. Is this not yet one more abstraction? Just saying it's so doesn't mean it is so. Or am I just, okay, this is John's language, a big fat normalist here.
0: <laughs> Nominalist.
1: Nominalist. <laughs> And finally, so just adding the word actually doesn't make something happen, and finally, is the application of the word proclaimed and the sacraments administered what puts the abstraction to death? Lots of things going on here
2: Well, there are a lot of things going on, but i think uh, I think I can point to uh to two of uh the first is that um Uh, Christ taking the sin of the world, which is um, preached, that means prophesied in Isaiah 53. There are, of course, uh, other places as well, but that's sufficient uh, itself. Um, uh, And uh, the uh, references uh, to uh, Christ. Um, on the cross as sin, uh, for example, Second Corinthians chapter 5, the very last verse of that chapter, the one who knew no sin became sin, uh, or Galatians chapter 3, um, Christ became a Christ became curse. Uh, not just a curse or one curse among many or something like that, Uh, All of these things would be complete and utter abstractions, like a theory or an idea or uh, an idea of a perfect triangle up, uh, you know, in heaven somewhere, uh, but you can't find it down here on earth. All of those things would be true if Christ didn't, in fact, die on the cross— And the only way the death on the cross is even possible to talk about uh, is if Christ comes under the um, attack of the law, because it's the law's job. This is what the law's job uh, is. The law's job seeks out a crime. That's what it does. And then when it finds the criminal behind the crime, it attacks the criminal. It does it uh, by legal means, that is the law's means. It's not attacking outside of the law. The law is, is using its full force against Christ. And Christ could not have become the criminal on the cross, and that's what he is. He is a criminal on the cross. Whether whether you think he really did it or not uh, doesn't matter at that point. He is a criminal on the cross, and none of that would be true if he had not actually taken sin. That is, the sin is not his own. He didn't produce it. He didn't make it. He didn't Uh, commit a sin of his own. Well then, what sins have actually uh, become his own? How did they they come on to him? Um, Well, uh, uh, there are a whole series of ways in which Christ teaches us how this happens, starting with uh, Christ ate with sinners. That's how this happens. And as anybody who reads Scripture, and you don't have to read Scripture to know this, as anybody knows this, you actually become the group that you are involved with. What you, what you actually take on is what the group you involve yourself with uh, takes on. I so we could go further with illustrations, but what this means is that Christ actually took the sins of Human beings, not humankind in general, but human beings, that is, person by person. Luther does this better than anybody else in his Galatians commentary, uh, when he's going through how Christ could become a curse. And he says, Christ is hanging on the cross and saying to you, I now have become the sinner, David. The I have taken on David's sin, Moses' sin, Peter's sin, Paul's sin, and the sin of every single individual. And I did this freely. And when I did, I actually was crucified not with abstract theory of sin on me, but every single concrete historical physical sin ever committed or that ever would be committed, and he took it upon himself bodily. That's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that the person started with, uh, with exactly the right uh, words. None of this is going to be salvation or helpful to you until you learn that when Christ was raised from the dead, he actually sought out his chosen sinners one by one, and he sent a preacher to them so that that preacher would actually say to them, not just this, I, Christ, took abstract sin upon myself, but you say to the person, I took your sin upon myself. That's what it means to die in his death. I took your sin, and now Christ says one other thing. When I took your sin personally, individually, not abstractly, materially, physically, concretely, when I took your sin, I now forgive your sin once and for all. And when I forgive the sin, I'm not forgiving it abstractly. And the, the reason that he does this through a preacher is so that you do not receive this in theory or abstraction, but you receive it concretely, personally, individually, one-to-one, and it starts with your baptism. So, there you have the answers to both sides. Christ took actual sin, not abstract sin. And secondly, he comes through a preacher, and he forgives your sin directly, personally, not abstractly.
0: Two responses to that. I'm thinking of the Marburg colloquy with Zwingli. And given what you just said with regard to abstraction or something that's symbolic or something that's just ritualistic, I can see, I don't know if this was apocryphal or no, but uh, in, in some of my readings over the years, it is said that Luther was so upset with Zwingli that he took some kind of penknife and carved on the table, "This is my body" in the Latin, uh, to really emphasize this corporeal sensibility. The second thing is, uh, Steve, you're gonna you're gonna be so impressed uh, that your friend takes your writings. <laughs> seriously, in your book on Lutheran theology, and I think it's about page 100 or so, you give the example, much like Nick was talking about earlier, about being the truck driver uh, in the scenario that Gerhard gives with the person jumping out into the street to, to save this child and in the doing is, is killed you also emphasized this bodily sense of our involvement, the actuality of it. Uh, if I remember correctly, you talk about anybody who's, correct me here if I'm getting way off, but anybody who's in a car accident knows what it feels like that their sin or their transgression or their accident, you know, uh, that sin is born in the body of that other person in the accident now i think it's in a section where you talk about atonement but it, yeah if you could if you could get that back on the rails a little bit
2: well right uh the uh illustration uh, that that i usually use here is close to that but i think i can use an illustration that will will uh, m- make that a little bit clearer.
0: Um,
2: I have a sister, uh, and um, uh, I-, I always uh, recount how it is that uh, every Thanksgiving we get together, and then as you know, in a uh, family at Thanksgiving, um, you uh, you don't just talk about the weather, but you eventually start rehearsing old uh, problems that uh, keep coming up within the family. And at some point, uh, my, my sister always pulls back her bangs, which she has to have uh, in order to cover the scar that I gave her when I pushed her off the uh, chair uh, while we were watching Roy Rogers, uh, and Nick won't even have any idea what I'm talking about here, uh, on television, which is one of the sweetest shows you could ever find uh, uh, and uh, uh, truly nonviolent nevertheless uh, I shoved her off the uh, the, the sofa uh, into a radiator and it it uh, it gave her a big gash on the forehead. My mother came running out of the uh, kitchen uh, and uh, put her hand over the forehead of of uh, my sister and then turned to me and said. Uh, This is, by the way, exactly what Anselm would have said. Why did you do this? And I said, the devil made me do it. (laughs) And uh, uh, ever since that time, she bears the scar and she reminds me. So uh, there, when she she wants to get back at me for something I said, she pulls back her uh, bangs, shows me the scar, and then says, remember this? That's what it means for another human being to carry your sin in their body. And occasionally, they will remind you of it. Uh, and any of you who have, uh, have uh, brothers or sisters, no doubt are going to have some similar story to this, where uh, somebody in your family carries a uh, sin and will remind, it, uh, remind you of it. But you can see how, uh, this is uh, humorous for my sister to raise this, but you can see how devastating this actually uh, gets in a person's life when they are the cause of an accident and the harm to another person, which they can't take back once it's happened. Um, and uh once that, uh, once that happens, you start to know what it means for another person to carry your sin upon their body. And Christ does this in spades. Uh, we can't even quite imagine it. Uh, you just imagine how Christ at Saint, the Thanksgiving table would have to pull back his bangs and exactly how many scars he could point to. Uh, this is what he's doing when, uh, when Thomas comes to him. Uh, Thomas says, I don't believe this. Then Jesus says, okay, take your finger out and stick it in here, uh, and you'll see where your sin is. Then you can start to understand what, what it means for a Christ to atone for our sin.
0: Excellent. Nick, do you, have, do you have any kind of concluding question here, kind of a, a summary um, as, as a barrister to be here? You have a summary uh, question for for the judge.
1: Sorry, there's F 16s flying over right now. <laughs> yeah,
0: I have the same issue.
1: I don't know if it's coming across on the mic, but good. Um, I don't know if I have any uh, concluding thoughts. I feel like the more I dive into uh, any sort of theological study, the more I'm kind of scratching my head (laughs) like there's so much complexity with uh the cross the atonement one thing i had never heard before is the idea that it was god's plan uh to send jesus with sin or not even though that that's just speculation um but yeah i I guess after this discussion today uh even this isn't really summary but it's more just christian commentary It's, it's pretty cool going back to Genesis and then the reference in John, I think in the beginning, those two phrases that parallel there was the word in John and the word was with God and the word was God and it became flesh. And then the, in the beginning in Genesis, suggesting that Christ was there from the beginning and that God, uh, was walking in the garden with his creation. Uh, and then his creation, uh, had to be pushed away from God it with sin. But the idea that God always wanted to be with us and he is with us and that he's always forgiving us daily, weekly in the sacraments uh, daily uh, with us preaching that to each other um, and that he's, that, that he's not giving up on us. And I think even looking at the old Testament, he was very personal with <laughs> the Israelites uh, with the pillar, the cloud, and the fire uh, and all of his prophets, and now he's still very personal to us through the sacraments, through preachers, uh and then he continues to love us i mean, yeah uh
2: well, uh it is truly amazing that a God that we uh killed uh actually turns around and loves us not for the killing but uh, precisely by forgiving. That does mean something about the difference. There, there is something that's the same in the two in beginnings, the one uh, at the beginning of Genesis and the one at the beginning of John's Gospel. The thing that is the same is that the same God is speaking the same word that created from the beginning. However, The difference between them is that when God speaks it through his incarnate Son, who has been crucified and raised from the dead, he now is actually making us a new creation. He is not going back to the beginning and um, correcting, or uh, putting a band-aid on it, or uh, saying now that i can uh, I can solve this uh, through a judicial means uh, by by actually uh, uh, having a judge and a uh, and a jury who can resolve this he now is actually giving a brand new life to us uh, which is an actual resurrection from the dead and that's beyond What we could grasp, either in what we understand love to be, or what we understand the power of God to create or make. Uh, The fact that He can come to us, who has crucified His Son, and actually create us new in such a way that we cannot sin any longer. Uh, Sin is not a possibility and this is truly amazing that's what we mean by the gospel good news
1: amen
0: well Nick and dr. Paulson uh, thank you for uh, giving of your time uh, to this very important uh, matter of the atonement uh, this happy exchange as Luther calls it uh, where Christ has taken on our sin and given us a freedom that opens us up into the future, and I think that's something too that uh, we would want to emphasize as we kind of conclude today is that it's not it is it is an event, uh, Christ's death that is on the past that has already been accomplished for us, but now opens us up with freedom into the future uh, with hope and his promised presence, as as Nick has said. And so uh, God's graced you in your continued ministry. Uh, Nick, as you make your way to Wake Forest now this fall, and and Dr. Paulson, as well, with your uh, leadership and um, teaching among the seminarians at uh, Luther House of Study. So, Many thanks,
2: and likewise, uh, Pastor John, continue in your good preaching. And uh, Nick, uh, we want you to succeed. We need good lawyers and good judges. So, uh, I, uh, and uh, believe me, I will need your services uh, in the future in that regard, so we're looking forward to that. But here is one more great thing for you. If you should ever fail at Wake Forward Forest uh, and becoming a lawyer, and, uh, then you can become, like your uncle and myself, uh, a, uh, a preacher after the fact, uh, and you will be able to do something useful regardless, alright?
1: Well, if anything, uh, I take away right, uh, from this. Uh, if I fail at law school, if I fail at seminary, and I just end up living in my parents' basement for the rest of my life, it doesn't matter. I'm forgiven.
2: <laughs>
1: it's <laughs> <Okay>. all good. <laughs>
2: No, you you got that very close. What it means is that your parents will be calling me and you will be living in my basement.
0: That's what that means. (laughs) That sounds
1: good. Thanks, guys. Thank you, gentlemen.